Well, it's a new year, isn't it? Uh, and that means it's time for a new sermon series for our elders and staff. Uh, the topic for this year's series is God-centered worship. God-centered worship. And this is really fitting Uh, coming on the heels of the series that the elders and staff did last year, thinking about the attributes of God and who God is and how we are to live in light of who God is. And our primary response to who God is could be summarized with that singular word, worship. Worship. However, as soon as I say the word worship... Uh, There's likely a number of thoughts that pop into your head that may or may not need some clarification. So first, as we launch into this series on God-centered worship, I want to clarify that what we mean by worship, when we talk about worship, we're not merely talking about singing. We're not just talking about singing. So often when we hear the word worship, our, our minds go straight to singing. We think about the singing part of the gathering as if that is the worship part. We, we pray, we worship, and we preach. That's what we do on a Sunday morning. We have that division in our minds oftentimes. But the reality is that everything we do, everything we do when we come together on a Sunday morning, everything we do is worship. Being equipped in equipping classes is worship. Fellowshipping together is worship. Our time of praying together is worship. Yes, our singing together is worship. The preaching of God's word and sitting under and submitting to the preaching of God's word is a time of worship. Our giving is worship. One passage that we'll look at later in this series that I think helpfully broadens our understanding of worship is Romans chapter 12 verse 1. It says, therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, what Paul is saying in that passage is that based on the glories of the gospel that he's spent 11 chapters expounding upon up to that point, he turns and tells them what they're supposed to do in light of the mercies of God. And what they're supposed to do is to live continually as a a living sacrifice, laying down our lives to do the will of God, to the glory of God. And that, that is worship under this umbrella definition of of worship for the Christian all of life all of life is to be worship doing the dishes that's worship you're supposed to do that in a way that is worshiping and praising God in your heart and in your mind you go to work for the purpose of worship men you shepherd your wife and your children as an act of worship You mow the yard as an act of worship. You share the gospel with your neighbor. That's worship. Again, the preaching of the word, submissively sitting under the preaching of the word is worship. Church discipline is worship. 
serving one another, bearing one another's burdens, discipling one another, loving one another, rebuking one another. It's worship. That's the first clarification. The the, the second, largely in light of that first clarification, is that singing, genuine praise, it is one of the pinnacle expressions of worship. Perhaps you were thinking maybe I was kind of downplaying singing by broadening our our definition of worship. No, to the contrary, I think when we understand that worship is how we live all of life in, in submissive, joyful praise to God, that actually heightens our understanding of musical worship and singing God's praises. If everything we do is a conscious act of worship to God in in the everyday things, the unique act of intentionally and purposefully bursting out with songs of praise with our voices as a congregation, as the people of God, that is truly a special pinnacle act and expression of worship. It's the culmination of of all the worship that goes on throughout the week in our hearts and lives. It's a chief expression of love and adoration. We sing about what we love. We sing about what we worship as the pinnacle expression of that worship. So in this series, we, we aren't just talking about singing, but what we are talking about has obvious and massive implications for our singing. And so for that reason, as we walk through this series this year when when the elders and staff are are preaching, we're going to be spending most of our time in the book of Psalms. A psalm, that's just the Hebrew word for song. But these songs are they're so instructive for our worship in, in both categories, both in the broad sense of how we live our lives as an offering of praise to God, but they're also instructive for us in our singing of praises to God. And this psalm that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 63, is, I pray, going to be so helpful for us to consider in, in light of both of those realities. This is a psalm, it is all about Longing for God, having supreme desire for God. And as we'll see as we walk through this psalm, this longing for God, it's the foundation upon which, it's, it's the fountain from which genuine God-centered worship flows. With no, with no heart, no longing, no soul behind it, the, the songs that we sing can so quickly become empty meaningless recitations. We can worship in vain. We can sing praises to the God of the universe in a meaningless, even a self-indicting kind of way. We don't want to become like the church in Ephesus that we looked at last week in Revelation chapter two, the church that had lost its first love, that had grown cold, We don't want to become like the church in Laodicea that we'll look at in a few weeks in Revelation chapter 3 that was lukewarm. And so the Lord says, what am I going to do with these lukewarm, cold-hearted people? I'm going to spit them out of my mouth. Nor do we want to be like the Pharisees who Jesus condemned in Matthew Matthew 15 with the chilling words of Isaiah 29. This people honors me with their lips, 
but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So how, how do we guard our hearts from that? How do we guard our hearts from empty, heartless worship? How do we cultivate a, a longing for God that leads to genuine, God-centered worship? I think that's what Psalm 63 is going to be showing us this morning. So as we walk through this psalm, we're going to see three pursuits for cultivating longing for God that leads to genuine God-centered worship. We pursue these things, and when we pursue these things, it cultivates in us a heart, a genuine heart of longing for God, desire for God, and that's what leads to genuine God-centered worship. David, the author of this psalm, exemplifies these pursuits for us here in the, the setting of his writing, this psalm heightens and really intensifies each of these pursuits. So if you look at the, the superscript, the little kind of subtitle that you see there in your Bible before verse one, it says a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. That's somewhat a general, a general statement, a general time in David's life, but we can narrow this down to two possible uh, time periods in David's life. Either this is referring to the time in David's life. He was anointed to be the next king because the Lord had rejected Saul and he slays Goliath and then Saul brings him in and he's ministering to Saul but Saul becomes just maddened and jealous towards David and drives him out and he's chasing David around the, the wilderness of Judah like a crazed, jealous madman. It could be referring to that time in David's life. The second, the second option is, is much later in David's life when he had been king for some time and his son Absalom sought to take the throne from him. Absalom drove David and those faithful to David out of Jerusalem and into the wilderness. I think the most significant argument in favor of this second option is that David, David never calls himself the king while Saul is alive. The entire time he's running from Saul and, and Saul's chasing him around, he speaks in such honorable ways about Saul. He speaks about Saul as the king of Israel, the anointed one of God. So he never uses that title for himself while Saul is alive. And here in Psalm 11, as Brett read in verse 11, David calls himself the king. The king will rejoice in God. He's speaking of himself. So I think this second option, this time in David's life when Absalom has betrayed him and usurped the throne, I think that's the most likely option for the writing of this psalm. He's on, he's on the run from people who are fervently pursuing his life, seeking to kill him. But again, you even think about the, the personal nature of that betrayal. This was his son, and his son whom he truly and deeply loved. His son was spreading lies about David throughout the kingdom, turning people away from David and towards himself. His son who in a vengeful power move 
as he drives David out of Jerusalem, Absalom sleeps with his, fa- his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel, it says in 2 Samuel 16, 22. This is the circumstances that David is in. He's out of his home, he's fleeing, hiding, scavenging. And most significant for this psalm, he's away from, he's away from Jerusalem. He's away from the central place of the worship of Yahweh, away from the tabernacle, away from the, the priest, the altar, the sacrifices, the official worship of Yahweh. And in this context, in the midst of this dark time of affliction, David's longing for God as it is expressed in this psalm, it, it shines like a star in the night sky. He is exemplary for us here in these pursuits. With that setting in mind, the the first pursuit that we're going to look at for cultivating longing for God that leads to genuine God-centered worship is this. Be desperate for God. Be desperate for God. Desperation is what marks the first four verses of this psalm, isn't it? Desperation. Look at those verses again. It says, oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. David begins this psalm with the introductory and and overarching statements in the beginning of the first part there of verse one. He, He begins by expressing his allegiance to God. He says, oh God, you are my God. You are my God. Despite these circumstances that aren't great, to say the least, that appear so unfavorable, David has not turned his back on God. He has not turned his back on God. And that's even more relevant for us because David knew this was happening to him. All of this was happening because God said it would happen. Because God had ordained and planned that this would happen as discipline for David, as discipline for him because of David's adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. David knew the Lord was causing all this and yet he's still, you are my God. You are my God. You remember in that infamous moment when the prophet Nathan sticks his bony finger in the face of the king David and calls him out for his adultery and his murder and he calls him to repentance. In that famous scene, he also promises David these painful consequences in 2 Samuel 12. Starting in verse 10, he says, Now therefore, the sword shall, not, shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel 
and under the sun. David's reaping what he sowed. He's reaping the consequences, the discipline at the hand of God, this severe, painful, and personal discipline. And yet, even in his plight, he is still clinging to God as his God. And not only is this this a statement of allegiance, but it's also a statement of assurance. Such a sweet statement of assurance that you still are my God. I do still belong to you despite the fact that you're disciplining me, despite the fact that that I'm guilty of the sins for which you are disciplining me, you are my God. He has assurance that he does belong to God. I'm reminded of that passage in Hebrews 12 where we're instructed that only illegitimate children don't receive discipline. Discipline is not a sign of God's rejection, Hebrews 12 reminds us. It reminds us that it's a sign that we are truly God's sons and that he disciplines us so that we might share in his holiness for our good. That's where David's mind, that's where David's heart is as he's penning these words. Immediately on the heels of that opening phrase, David's zealous desperation breaks out. I will seek you earnestly, he says. His assurance that he belonged to God, it didn't lead to complacency, but instead fervency. That's what biblical assurance does. I know you're my God, but I'm still seeking you. I'm still seeking you earnestly. In fact, it's because you're my God that I'm going to seek you earnestly. These two lines are paralleled here. Assurance leads to diligence, not negligence. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, full assurance is no hindrance to diligence, but is the mainspring of it. When we have assurance, the sense that we know that we're saved, that we truly belong to God, that through the finished work of Christ, we're truly and fully adopted as sons of God, that leads to diligence in pursuing God, not negligence as if Ah, it doesn't matter, I'm once saved, always saved, right? I can just live however I want. That's not real biblical assurance. Biblical assurance leads to diligence. Also note here that God's discipline was having its intended effect upon David. That's why God disciplines his children, so that they will seek him. So that they will seek him. In Hosea chapter five, God is... God's describing his, his, his discipline upon both Israel and Judah. In Hosea 5.14, he says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place. I'm going to bring this judgment about on you, is what he's saying, until, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And then in the following verse in Hosea, in chapter six, you have the repentant refrain of those under discipline who are turning away from sin and back to the Lord. Listen to Hosea 6.1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but 
he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. That's God's intended effect of discipline, that his people will turn from their sin and seek him. The discipline of the Lord upon David in his life is having its intended effect. He's desperately seeking after the Lord. But again, notice the connection between these two lines. This allegiance to God leads to a seeking of God. So for you sitting here today, if if you claim to have that same allegiance, if you, if you claim, yes, I belong to God, but there is no zealous, intense, focused, diligent pursuit of God, then God is not your God, whatever you may think. Because those who belong to God seek after him. Now, sure, the intensity of our pursuit may wax and wane, but those who belong to God seek him. In the Old Testament, to describe somebody as somebody who seeks after God, that's just saying they're a Christian, they're a believer, it's a synonym. It's another way to describe somebody who believes in God, who is a true Christian. They seek after him, they pursue him with all of their heart. There are no constantly, consistently, continually complacent, lukewarm, half-hearted, indifferent, apathetic Christians. That's not a real class of Christian. That doesn't lead to genuine worship, but hypocritical worship from a cold and dead heart. That was certainly not the case with David. His inner life was driving his desperate pursuit of the Lord. These weren't just words for David. He says, my soul, my soul thirsts for you. What uniquely marks each section of this psalm is that phrase, my soul soul. You'll see it again at the beginning of verse 5 and then again at the beginning of verse 8. That, that repetition is intentional and it's breaking up this psalm for us into these three pursuits. These are the pursuits of David's soul that are at the root of his longing for God and they are the foundation of his worship. Now again, just like the word worship, as soon as I say the word soul, there, there are various things that may come into your mind that are worth clarifying and, and thinking about for a minute here. Most of the time when we think about the word soul, we're thinking about some immaterial part of a person. That's kind of how we would describe your soul as if it's something you possess. It's some immaterial part of you. We, we speak about the soul as something we have or something that is a part of us. But that's not the way the Bible speaks. That's not how the Bible talks about mankind. That's not biblical anthropology. That's actually the influence of man's theories about man, not God's revelation about man. We need to make sure our anthropology, our understanding of who we are as people, we need to make sure that's biblical. We would do well to heed the warning of one theologian. He said, in considering the makeup of man, we must be particularly careful to examine the presuppositions we bring to our study. 
because there are non-biblical disciplines which also are concerned about man, the possibility that some of their conceptions might affect our theological construction looms large. Whether it be an ancient Greek dualism or a modern behavioristic monism, we need to be on guard against reading a non-biblical presupposition into our understanding of Scripture. What he's saying is we, we shouldn't let the theories of our world and man's thoughts about who we are infiltrate and shape our understanding of what the Bible says about who we are as man. When it comes to thinking biblically about the soul, then we should recognize that you are a soul. You are a soul. You do not have a soul. You are a soul. This is seen from the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. It's describing that beautiful account of the specific creation when God is creating man. It says in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. What does that have to do with our soul? Where is soul in that? Well, that last word of the verse, being, it's the same word that's used here in Psalm 63 and all over the Old Testament that's most often translated as soul. So God breathed the breath of life into a lump of dirt and the lump became a living soul. It did not gain a soul as if that were part of it. No, it became a living soul. That's what it is. That's what we are. This is the Hebrew word nephesh. One Hebrew scholar, he says, nephesh is the usual term for a man's total nature, for what he is, not just what he has. So, so David's longings here are the longings of the entirety of his being, not just part of him. No, all of who he is is desperately seeking after God. You see that even more clearly in that he, he parallels his, his flesh, my body. He, he parallels flesh with soul in the next line. My soul thirsts for God. My flesh yearns for God as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's saying all of my being is groaning with desperation for God. He, he paints such a picture of desperation with these words, thirsting and yearning after God. His, his physical surroundings and circumstances are merely used as metaphors for the desperation at the core of his being. This is, he's painting this picture of an unquenchable need to have God, and God alone can satisfy that need. Again, Charles Spurgeon is helpful commenting on this verse. He says, thirst is an insatiable longing after that which is one of the most essential supports of life. There is no reasoning with thirst, no forgetting it, no despising it, no overcoming it by stoical indifference. Thirst will be heard, and the whole man must yield to its power. Even thus is it with that divine desire which the grace of God creates in regenerate men, only God himself can satisfy the craving of a soul really aroused by the Holy Spirit. That's David's Godward desire here. And this longing for David was nothing 
knew. It, it wasn't just because he was in this desperate situation. That's not why he's longing for God as he is. This was nothing new for him. Verse 2 actually draws a comparison with verse 1. You see that little word thus or maybe so in your translation. Linking verses 1 and 2. Comparing verses 1 and 2. He's saying in the same way that I'm longing now. I have been longing. Desperate to get a glimpse of you. What he states there in in verse 2. He states it and it's truthful but it's not true. I've seen you. He He had not seen God, nor had he actually been in the sanctuary, the holy place. That's a a technical term for inside of the tabernacle. David wouldn't have been allowed inside the tabernacle. Only the priests were allowed to enter into the holy place of the tabernacle, and only the high priest was allowed to enter the, the holy of holies once a year on the day of atonement. What David is describing here in verse 2 is his longing as he would worship in Jerusalem at the tabernacle, as he would offer sacrifices for atonement. His longing was to peer behind the veil, to look behind the curtain, to see the glory of God where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the glory of God was. He wants longing after God. He's saying, my circumstances now, I'm in the wilderness, I'm still longing after God, I'm far away, I'm removed from his presence and his central worship, but my longing is the same as it was there. I long to see God, to behold his power and his glory. This is really reminiscent of that scene in Exodus chapter 33. You remember in in chapter 32, Israel had sinned against the Lord. They had made the the golden calf and they were committing idolatry and immorality and worshiping this golden calf. And then the Lord tells Moses and the people after they had committed that idolatry, the Lord says, I'm not going, I'm still going to give you the promised land. I'm still gonna drive out the, the, the nations that are there. I'm still gonna give you that land, but I'm not gonna go with you. That's what the Lord says. I'm not, I'm not gonna go with you because you're an, you're an obstinate people. You're really stubborn. And if I go with you, I might destroy you because I cannot tolerate your sin. So I'm no longer going to go with you. And then in verse 12 of Exodus 33, Moses starts to plead with the Lord. Then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And then God says to Moses, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. But that's not enough for Moses. His longing isn't quenched with that. Then Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. It's still not enough. Then Moses said, I pray you, I pray you, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Don't just come with us. Reveal yourself to me. I want to know you. 
I want to behold you. I'm desperate for fellowship, communion, the sweetest. I want to be as close to you as, as I can. I want to know you as much as I can. That's David here in Psalm 63 as well. David's longing for God is even heightened by his present reality. Again, he's, he's driven away from Jerusalem, away from the tabernacle, away from the central worship of the Lord. Verse three then is, is really this hinge in this section where his desperation leads to breaking out in praise. You see his desperation still at the beginning of verse three. Because of your loving, because your loving kindness is better than life. Again, that's desperation. That is desperation for God. That's an extreme, heightened, ultimate view of God and not just of God, but of God's saving favor. That's, it's the word has said, God's loving kindness, the saving kindness and grace of God that resides in God's character that he mercifully bestows on his people, his needy people. David says his loving kindness and is, is better than life. I would rather have the love of God than my own life. I would rather have the, the saving favor, the faithfulness of God than life itself. It's more valuable to me than my own life or anything in this life. Nothing compares with having God and having his favor. That's desperation. That's a real sense of how desperately he felt his need for God. And because of that desperation, because of that reality, because of his valuation, David says, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Every waking moment I will spend exalting you, praising you, living for you, worshiping you, lifting up my hands in need, looking to you for all that I need and all that I am and do. That's praise. That's praise. Genuine praise flowing from the fountain of a desperate longing for God. Are you, are you in a dry spiritual season Do you resonate at all with what these verses are describing? Does your heart long after God in this way? It's probably because you aren't desperate for God. So often we get into spiritually dry seasons because we aren't desperate enough for God. We aren't readily, constantly recognizing our desperate need for God. Church, we, we need to be desperate for God. We must be desperate for God, thirsting for him, yearning to know him, longing to behold his glory. We don't, we don't worship, we don't long for God as we ought because we so often don't sense our need for God. We are so quickly self-dependent and self-sufficient. We, we so quickly look and run every which way for solutions to the afflictions that come into our life instead of looking and running to God. 
He brings suffering. He brings discipline. He brings hardships so that we would see not only our insufficiency, but the insufficiency of everything else to meet our needs so that we would look to him and him alone, desperately run after him. If we would have God-centered worship, we need to cultivate our desperation, our sense of need for God. Because if, we are, if we're desperate for God, what we're going to do is we're going to seek him out. We're gonna go after him. We're gonna pursue him in his word. That's how we seek God. That's how we seek to know God, to behold him, is in the pages of his word. That's where we hear his voice. And there and there alone do we find instructions for the worship of God and thus have genuine God-centered worship because we're submitting to the word of God. Our worship is so often not God-centered but me-centered because we think that we can worship God however we want. We think we can just come to God in whatever way feels good to us. And we're so casual in our approach to God. No. No. God cares deeply. Not just that we worship him. Our God cares deeply about how we worship him. And that we worship him according to his word. You remember that terrible account of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. They thought they could worship God how they wanted. They thought they could do what, what felt, what seemed right to them. Offering incense to God was a priestly duty. It was something they were supposed to do, but they did it in the wrong way. They didn't do it how God prescribed. And what happened? Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses, he says to Aaron, this father of these young men who he's just seen incinerated before his eyes. What does Moses say to this father? It's what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, by those who worship me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. In, in other words, those who worship me will do so in accordance with my holiness, in accordance with my word. They will revere me. And to revere God is to revere his word. God cares, church. God cares how we worship. That, that's, why, that's why we sing the way we sing here. That's why we do the songs that we do. It's not about preference. It is not about your musical tastes and likes and dislikes. It's not about what we think is appealing or, or, or trendy or, or culturally relevant. We're not just dumb like, oh man, why don't, why don't they do what the cool churches are doing? No, we know that they're doing that. We're choosing intentionally to not do that on purpose because it's about what God says in his word about he is to be worshiped, how he is to be worshiped. It's because of God's instructions to us in his word. He tells us what we're to do when we gather to sing together. We care about that because we're only gonna care about that if we're desperate for God. If we're just here for an experience, 
If we're just here for a show, we're not gonna care so much about that. But, but if we are desperate, if we are hungry for God, we know we need him, we seek him. We seek to live and work and worship and sing according to his word. We must continue to pursue this kind of deep desperation for God so that we genuinely worship God as the one whom we truly need. Secondly, be satisfied in God. The the second pursuit for cultivating longing for God that leads to genuine worship is be satisfied in God. Look at verses five through seven. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. If we just had the first section, the first four verses of this psalm and that idea of of desperation, there would be a kind of emptiness, wouldn't there? As if all there ever is is never-ending thirst and wilderness experiences. No, true desperation for God leads to satisfaction in God. It's right to see somewhat of a a progression flowing from one pursuit to the next as we make our way through this psalm, but it's it's not perfectly tidy and neat. These pursuits often overlap and it's often a circular process and we move from one pursuit to the next to the next, but it is still somewhat of a process and progression nevertheless. A desperate seeking, intense thirst for God demands to be satisfied and it is satisfied in God alone. God doesn't just say thirst after me and and hold the carrot out as if, hey, you could have this good thing, chase after it and never actually nourishes us and satisfies our souls. No, he satisfies our souls. He quenches our thirst. This theme of, of thirst and satisfaction, it isn't, it isn't new. It's not just here in uh, the Bible. It's in a number of places throughout the scripture. Listen to Isaiah 55, one and two. Everyone who thirst, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. God is calling people, come to me. You're thirsty, you're hungry. Delight yourself in abundance that's found in me alone. Or we could look at the indictment of Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He's saying, You could have the fountain of living water. You could refresh your soul with never-ending life and joy if you would just come to me, but you have forsaken me. And instead of enjoying and drinking from the depths of the fountains of living water, you're over there, as Brett said once, sucking on the sand. You stupid people. Myself included, we're so spiritually dumb so often. Why would you do that? Why would you seek satisfaction in in something that does not satisfy when you could, the never-ending fountains of satisfaction in God himself are freely available to you? 
Or listen to the, the plea of Jesus in John 7. John 7, 37, he says now, it says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus saying, come to me if you're thirsty, if you're longing for satisfaction, come to me and I will quench your thirst. Or in the culmination and restoration of all things at the end when heaven comes to earth in Revelation 21.5. It says, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it's done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. God's people are thirsty for him and he doesn't just leave us thirsty and longing. No, he satisfies our souls. He quenches our thirst. We're hungry for him and he fully satisfies our appetites. That's what David is describing here in this section. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. He's saying my soul is full. That, that, that's the word. It's the same word that you would use if you were eating a meal and you were, you were full, you were filled up. You didn't need or want anymore. If you're full, you're content. You're content. You lack nothing. You want nothing. And David here says he's satisfied as, with, as if with the richest and best food. It's literally, the words are fat and fatness here. It's a hendiades. You know what that means. It, it, all that means is that it's two words that have the same meaning that are paired together for emphasis. The best of the best of foods. His soul is satisfied as if he's eaten the best meal of his life. His soul is satisfied and filled. And so his mouth speaks. Because his soul is satisfied, he offers praises with joyful lips. That, that's what you do after a, a great meal, isn't it? You're satisfied, you need, you want nothing because you are filled up to the full and you lean back and you say, and that was amazing. That was delicious. What is that? What is that? That's the praises of joyful lips that have just tasted and been delighted and filled with good food. And then when it's a, when it's a really, really good meal, you keep thinking about it, don't you? Even as you're laying in your bed, you're thinking, man, that, that was great. And if you've just enjoyed some barbecue, barbecue has this way of like seeping into your pores. And you can I lay in my bed at night after we have good barbecue and I just smell my fingers because I can still... You can still smell it. Maybe I need to wash my hands better. I don't know. But you're meditating on its, on its goodness. I think that's where David goes here in, in verse 6. His satisfaction is pervasive. He, he's so enraptured with God that even in the night he can't help but think of God and recount his faithfulness and his goodness and his steadfast love. And again, you... Remember where he is. 
He's not in the comforts of his home. He's not laying on a comfy bed. His bed's probably a rock. Not only is he laying on the rocks or the ground, he doesn't have shelter, he, he doesn't have his palace, the city walls, his army. That's not surrounding him. He's laying on a rock in the wilderness while armies are seeking to destroy him and take his life. And what's he thinking about? What's he meditating on? Is he, is he friv- frivolously, frantically worrying? No. He's meditating on God. He, he's so happy in God that his circumstances are of little account. One of the unique features of this psalm is that there's no request for anything. He, he doesn't even ask for the Lord's protection here. Like, that's not me. If I'm David, I'm probably not sleeping. I'm not laying down. I'm wide awake. I'm worrying. I'm fretful. And if I'm praying, I'm praying, God, help me. Deliver me. Rescue me. Change these circumstances that I don't, that I don't like. But not David. He has God. And that's, that's wonderful for him. He's content with that. He's satisfied in God. That's where his mind goes. And it's a, it's a satisfaction that's rooted in salvation and in joy-producing protection. That's what he says in verse 7. Why is he meditating on, on God in the middle of the night? He says, for or, or because you have been my help. You've been my help and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. Help is just a, a synonym for, for salvation. And the picture of being under his wings is the pic- picture of the protection of a, a mother bird for her, her young hatchlings. Again, it's just another picture of continual salvation and deliverance and protection and sustenance. And a salvation that begets joy, that creates joy in his heart, in his life. His satisfaction, his meditation are rooted in salvation and a salvation of joy. Salvation, the gospel, is all about joy. If you try to separate joy from the gospel, you're, you're rending the gospel in a way you should not. The angels, as they told the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, as they delivered news of the Messiah's birth, they said, I bring you good news of great joy. Uh, literally, you could translate this, I evangelize, that's the verb, to proclaim good news. I evangelize what to you? Joy. That's the object of their proclamation. It's what they're proclaiming as good news. We proclaim to you joy because the Messiah has come, because salvation has come. Salvation through Jesus as Brett prayed through his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his, his resurrection, being saved by the grace of God, by repenting of your sin and, and trusting in Jesus Christ, it's all about joy. A joyless salvation is not a saving salvation. We seek satisfaction in God because joy is found in God alone. Joy and satisfaction are, are connected You don't have joy if you aren't satisfied and and, and you can't be satisfied without joy. 
to cultivate a longing for God that leads to genuine God-centered worship. Be satisfied in God. Be satisfied in God. Seek your satisfaction in God and God alone. Genuine worship comes from that place. Genuine worship flows from the heart and life of one who is satisfied with God. That, that's the most God-centered worship that there is. I am full, I'm content with God, I need nothing else, he's all I need, he's all satisfying, he alone can and does meet my every need. I'm so satisfied in him. What do you wanna do? You wanna praise him. You wanna, you, you wanna shout from the rooftops, you wanna tell everybody, you wanna sing of his praise. And this, this is a fight. There's a, a fight to find satisfaction in God. It's a fight, isn't it? Have you found yourself wrestling? You've heard before you should seek your satisfaction in God and you're dead. That's just hard. That's hard, isn't it? It's a fight. Our sinful bent will pull us to seek satisfaction in anything but God. In anything but God. We're constantly bombarded with voices vying for our affection, vying for our satisfaction. Voices from the world, our own flesh, the devil. These voices promising, holding out some promise of satisfaction and they're all lies. They're all empty lies. And this is so key in the fight for satisfaction in God. The fight for our desires. It is a fight of faith. It's a fight of faith. It's a fight about what you believe. You want what you want. You seek satisfaction in what you do because you believe what you believe. Do you understand that? Do you see that connection? If you, if you, buy, if you buy into the lies of sexual lust, that, that's all lust is, isn't it? That's all it is, it's this promise. It's this promise of satisfaction. Do this and be satisfied. Enjoy this pleasure and, and be satisfied. If you buy, that's a lie. And if you buy into that lie, you're going to have sinful, lustful desires. You're going to want that because you believe that and you're never going to be satisfied. Never, it never actually results in true satisfaction. If you buy into the lies of materialism, as if this world is all there is and it's all just about accumulating things and wealth, your soul will constantly be searching for more possessions and more money. You will ever be wanting more and you will never be satisfied. It's a lie. If you buy into the lies of the wellness movement, you will be ever pursuing the mystical heights of perfect wellness, constantly bewildered by the reality that your body is failing and you're dying and you will never be satisfied. If you buy into the lies of politics, left or right, you will be constantly craving after the next political movement, the next politician, the next policy as your only hope and you will constantly be left frustrated and never satisfied. 
because what they promise is a lie. We could go on, but the point is this. Every promise of satisfaction outside of Jesus Christ is a lie. Every promise of satisfaction outside of Jesus Christ is a lie. So call it out. Recognize the lies that you're buying into, that you're believing, that are causing you to seek satisfaction in something, anything other than Jesus Christ. Don't believe the lie. It will not satisfy your soul. So don't believe the lie. Fight the fight of faith. Fight the fight to believe the truth instead of the lie. Believe the promises of God. Believe the promises of God. If you buy into the promises of God and believe what he says, your soul will find satisfaction. He doesn't lie. He doesn't lie. So believe what he says and find satisfaction in him. Slay the lies of lust with Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Don't believe the lie of lust. Believe this promise from God that in his presence is fullness of joy. Not in the the bed of a forbidden lover. Not in the pornographic fantasies. No, believe this promise. In your right hand, God, are pleasures forevermore. Slay lust with that promise. Slay the empty promises of perfect health with 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 5, 1. It says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So we don't put our hope in somehow having a perfect body or perfect wellness because we're not promised that. In fact, we're promised here that we are decaying. The outer man, it's wasting away. So don't put your hope in that. Don't believe that lie. Put your hope in the promise of eternal life, of a future resurrected new body in the heavens that's not made with hands. Put to death the lies of materialism with Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can put your hope in the empty lies of materialism and never be satisfied or you can believe the promise of an unfading, imperishable treasure in heaven. Silence the lies of empty political promises left and right with the promises of Jesus' coming kingdom. Daniel chapter 2 verses 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Don't put your hope, don't believe some promise that some politician is going to deliver some satisfaction for your life and for your soul. He will not. 
I guarantee it. Only God's kingdom will last forever. Only God's kingdom is unshakable. Put your hope there. Believe that promise. Don't believe the lies that promise satisfaction. Believe the truth of God's promises. Cultivate a longing for God by being satisfied in God alone. That leads to genuine God-centered worship. Third and finally, be dependent on God. Be dependent on God. If we want to cultivate a longing for God that leads to genuine worship, we must be dependent on God. Look at verses eight through 11. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. In this section, David expresses complete confidence in God, dependence on God. Confidence that God is going to uphold him, sustain him, support him. Confidence that God will deliver him from those seeking to destroy his life. Confidence that he will indeed rejoice in God. Confidence that God's people who swear allegiance to God will praise God and will glorify him. They will not be put to shame. This dependence is rooted in his connection to God. That first line there in verse eight, my soul clings to you. Again, notice that element of progression as we walk through the psalm. The soul that seeks God is satisfied in in God and the soul that finds satisfaction in God clings to him, does not let go. The word that's used here is the same word that's used in in Genesis 2 to describe the man and woman being joined together as God Uh, institutionalizes marriage as God creates marriage as he creates the the woman and brings her to the man and says for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast be joined shall cleave to his wife it's the same word that's used here in Psalm 63 we cling to God we are joined to him you don't go anywhere else You don't buy back into the lies that you used to believe. You cling to God. You stick with him, to him. You you don't walk away from the fountain of living water to go suck on the sand. And that's, that's expressing dependence upon him, that he's going to continue to meet your needs and be all that you need. It's expressing this dependent confidence in God. And here, David, it's it's a confidence that knows because I belong to God, he will protect me. He will protect me. My my soul is in his hands. I am in his hands. So David says, he says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life, that word life is actually the same word for soul that we've been seeing throughout the psalm. Those who seek my life, that's nephesh, the soul. Those who seek to destroy my soul, I'm clinging to God and his right hand is upholding me and yet people are still coming after me is what he's saying. What do you think people are going to find when they come after people who are held in the hand of God? Are they going to get to God's people? 
Is, is God just going to be like, whoops, forgot about you, sorry about that? No, you, you don't mess with God's people. God does not take well to his children being persecuted. He takes it personally. There's violent language here for the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. You're, you're seeking my life, my soul is in the hands of God. You're doing it to your own destruction and, and they will go into the depths of the earth. That's just a, a picturesque way to describe death. And then there's this word that's used for delivered, delivered over to the power of the sword. This, this word paints a picture of, of helplessly basically being poured out from a cup. Water has, water can do nothing once the cup starts to tip. It's, it's helplessly poured out at the mercy of the one holding the cup. Well, that's the picture here. God's enemies are in a cup and he's just pouring them out, giving them over to the power of the sword. The next phrase is even more violent. They will be a prey or a portion for foxes, meaning they'll be killed and their bodies will not be buried, but left as a meal for wild animals to devour. But the king, that's for God's enemies, but the king, the one clinging to God in confident dependence, he says, I will rejoice in God. That's going to happen to God's enemies, but I will rejoice in God. The contrasts here are, are striking. My soul is clinging to God. They're seeking to destroy my soul, but they bring about destruction for themselves. And instead of destruction, I rejoice in God. That's what dependent, delivered people do. That's what the saved do when they see the work of the Savior. They rejoice in God. He has delivered me. He has rescued me. He has saved me. Look what my God has done. And David makes sure we understand this isn't just for the king. It's not just for the king. It's for everyone who swears allegiance to the king of kings. All his people will glory. They will praise. They will not be ashamed the dependent people, those clinging to and confident in their God will joyfully shout forth glorious praises because of God's saving work in their lives. But, but the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. I would have ended on a more positive note, uh, but David did not. This is a stark warning and another stark contrast, the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped, period. Again, Spurgeon helpfully comments on this verse. He says, but the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped, and the sooner the better. If shame will not do it, nor fear, nor reason, then let them be stopped with the sexton's shovel full of earth. For a liar is a human devil. He's the curse of men and accursed of God who has comprehensively said, all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. See the difference between the mouth that praises God and the mouth that forges lies. The first shall never be stopped, but shall sing on forever. The second shall be made speechless at the bar of God. Our dependence, our, our confidence in God may appear to be 
weakness in the eyes of the lying world as they run their mouths. Their prideful boasts are constantly smearing the righteous. And by smearing and and speaking lies against the people of God, they're speaking against the God that we're clinging to. However, our dependence will result in our deliverance while their deception will lead to their defeat. What other response to all of this could we have than God-centered worship? Dependent people are God-centered people who worship God in genuine humility, recognizing I, I have God. He's my protection. He's my shield. I have him and him alone. I'm utterly dependent upon him. Dependent people look to God for everything, and that is glorifying to God. That is worship to God. Faith is inherently God-glorifying. Dependence is inherently God-glorifying. Speaking of Abraham in Romans 4.21, Paul says, He did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. As we depend upon God, as we look to God in faith and believe his promises, despite what appears to be the case, despite what the world says, we are giving glory to God. Faith clings to God as our only source of deliverance, our only source of eternal joy and satisfaction. And that kind of dependence as we depend upon God, we see his faithfulness, we see him continue to meet our needs and satisfy our souls and that just cultivates greater and deeper longing for God that leads to more and more genuine God-centered worship. Might we, by the grace of God, pursue these things this year? Might we be desperate for God, satisfied in him and dependent upon him, and thus might we worship him in a genuine and God-centered way. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we are, we are desperate for you this morning. We long to know you. We hunger and thirst for you. We look to you for satisfaction and we trust that we will be satisfied as you have promised cause us this year to grow in our longing for you. Revive our hearts, stir our affections for you, grow our love and dependence upon you. Help us by your grace to worship you in spirit and truth, in a genuine and God-centered